This week's episode of Screen Talk is brought to you by the new thriller Anthropoid. Experience the true story about the daring mission to assassinate Reinhard Heydrich, one of Hitler's highest-ranking officials and the architect of the final solution. The only thing more terrifying than the leader of the SS was the operation to take him out. Starring Killian Murphy and Jamie Dornan, Anthropoid, Resistance has a codename, only in theaters October 12th. Welcome to Screen Talk, IndieWire's weekly podcast. I'm Eric Kona, deputy editor and chief critic, joined as always by Ann Thompson in Los Angeles, but I'm phoning in from the Locarno Film Festival in Switzerland, where I'm here for my seventh year, so uh, it's that weird time of the year when it seems like things are maybe a little quiet before the fall season, so I find that opportunity, of course, to to keep myself busy with a, a special project by going out to this really interesting festival in Switzerland and, and running the, the Critics Academy as I have for the last five years. And, and you were here last year, so you kind of know what it's like. It's, it's a great little cinephile gathering of sorts before the uh, mayhem of Telluride in Toronto and all those other festivals that many more people in the U.S. will, will be hearing about. But it's early days yet, and I have to tell you, so far, so good. I can't really complain too much, although, uh, you know, what's interesting about it is that... Uh, I'm one of the only Americans here, so it can be sort of lonely in that respect. I've actually been in that. I felt that way when I went to Venice. I was uh-huh. hanging out with all the Brits, you know, because right, exactly. it was such a European festival. Um, you know, there were a few Americans there, but I mean, people are busy, you know, they, they don't yeah. necessarily want to hang out with you. <laughs> yeah, no, it's, it's been a real challenge for this festival. I mean, I call it a little cinephile gathering, but it, it's, it's pretty big on the European side. I and mean, there's thousands of people and, and local people who come in from the surrounding towns and, and so forth. But um, it, the industry presence is, is a hard thing to, to get North Americans interested in because they have Toronto, they have Telluride, and so many different things, and people take vacations. And so it's kind of fascinating because even though I do say it is isolating, on the other hand, it is a really amazing opportunity to see things in a vacuum in the sense that there there are some really strong films that come here, and you know when you see them that when they play at some of these other higher-profile festivals, at least on the North American side of things, uh, they will gain more attention. Or have you seen anything have- yet? So the the one film that I would say is worth singling out is as something that will probably get some attention uh, when it when it does more festivals in the fall and then opens I believe in the U.S. next year uh, is a film called The Girl with All the Gifts which was the opening night film here and on paper it sounded like a very strange uh, choice to open uh, a film festival because it's a zombie movie but it's actually a very elegant zombie movie sort of in the ex machina vein. It's um, it's adapted from this uh, fairly well-known British novel by M.R. Carey and sort of the, this fascinating twist on the post-apocalyptic zombie situation where uh, a bunch of survivors are holed up in this facility and even though there's this disease that's turned most of the world into zombies, you, you wind up having this small group of children who seem like they're normal, intelligent, thinking children, but they also are zombies carrying this disease. And so there's this one girl who's actually the centerpiece of the movie who's one of the zombies, essentially, and um, and uh, there's there's this survival story in which uh, she's protected by her teacher. Uh, and, what language uh, is it in? It's it's a British film. Uh, it's uh, directed by a man named Cole McCarthy, who's uh, 
actually right now working on the pilot for Krypton, the new uh, DC TV mm. series. And um, it's got, I, I, like, like I said, I mean, it, it, it's got a bit of, of that um, very edgy, elegant zombie movie quality to it. It's not in the same league as 28 Days Later, but, it, but it's a similar kind of vibe. And um, It sounds like it might have potential. Does it have a, a U.S. distributor? It does. Sabin Films is going to release it in North America next year, and actually Warner Brothers is releasing it internationally. So it's a pretty big movie, and uh, Gemma Arterton is the is probably the biggest uh, name, unless uh, you count Glenn Close, who's not the main character, but it, but does have a supporting role as uh, this kind of stern doctor who wants to find a way to save humanity. But the the real centerpiece of the movie, and, and I think. Uh, somebody who could be a real breakout is uh, this young woman named Sinia Nanua, who is uh, I, she's got to be uh, maybe twelve or, or thirteen, um, and and this is either her first or second role, and and she plays this girl who's infected with this disease, and yet somehow uh, doesn't become a zombie. And the mystery at the center of the movie of why there's this smart girl in the middle of this apocalyptic scenario is, is really fascinating. And I think it's very well done. Some of it feels very familiar, as I said, but um, it, it looks great. It, it, it works quite well. So that was that was a nice one to be able to see in this environment because um, it's not as big or uh, uh, catchy a, a title as some of the other films we might be talking about in the fall. But it, but it's certainly strong enough to warrant attention. I think there's enough going on there where even people who aren't necessarily uh, interested in what you know uh, what this looks like on paper will will get something out of it because it's got an artiness to it that that makes it stand out. But you know, in the same day that I saw this movie, about two hours later, I went to a press screening for a film called "I Had Nowhere to Go," which is an experimental film by Douglas Gordon, who people may know from his project Twenty Four Hour Psycho. Uh, about Jonas or not? <laughs> <laughs> well, Twenty Four Hour Psycho. I mean, it's the sort of thing where even if you don't necessarily know uh, a lot about avant-garde film, you might know about this thing where this guy—it was more of a gallery piece—sort of broke down the shower scene from Psycho frame by frame uh, in slow mo. Um, this this piece is is kind of fascinating because it's sort of this inventive biopic about Jonas Mikas, the diary filmmaker, uh, and and more specifically about when he left Lithuania in the middle of World War II and came to the United States. It's an adapted from his writings, but it's a 98-minute film with about 10 minutes of images. Most of the film is completely black and uh, with voiceover and sound effects, which may sound daunting, but if you're up for the task, can be quite rewarding as, as just a, an experience, a theatrical experience. I mean, there's no way you could watch this on YouTube and have the same experience. Oh, that's there are interesting. moments in the film where Jonas will describe hearing the bombs come in, in some air raid when he was a child and you're sitting in a dark room and then all of a sudden there's the loud noise of a bomb which is jarring and then you're sitting in darkness again and you experience the visceral fear of what it's like not knowing when that could happen again and that to me is just a really fascinating inventive way to use sound in a theatrical setting so to think about seeing this really polished elegant zombie movie and this experimental film in less than you know eight hours that's the essence of a festival like this and it's why i find it really rewarding it's certainly not the kind of thing that i'll be able to do in terms of contrast when we hit the crazier fall festival circuit so i'm, I'm appreciating that opportunity to be sure 
Cool. Um, so basically, we have a bunch of different festivals coming up, and a lot of them have been announcing various components of it. So we now know what the opening night in Toronto is, and we know the opening and closing night and a lot of the programming for Venice. And so I, I thought we would just look at the the basic um, it, it, it tends to be the, the big openers and closers and centerpieces and galas that are the ones that are being presented for some kind of uh, big fall profile, or, or they're, they're looking for an, an enhanced profile for their European release. That's also true for Venice. You know, but it's yeah. worth looking at also what, what these platforms do, really. I mean, they, it starts with the announcement. The moment that they're placed in those, in those sections, exactly. it's designed to send a message. And often they're screened with the intention of a studio saying this would be good for X or Y slot. So the one that sort of fascinates me, and I wrote a little bit about it, was sort of why would they put the Magnificent Seven, which is a big studio Western, Sony, Denzel Washington, Antoine Fuqua, pardon me? It's not to mention it's a friggin' remake, which is always something that Although, people... Although, you know what they say they're adapting, and that's what the Magnificent Seven was adapting to? I mean, they're saying is they're, they're adapting, you know, the great Akira Kurosawa's movie, you know? So, See, so... That's, that feels so, like so, such a coy maneuver, because, I mean, if, if that was the case, then just, you know, call it something else. I mean, it's... Well, they're it's... not going to call it a Japanese title. You know, they're going to go with the Magnificent Seven. But anyway, so basically, it looks... It does not look on the surface of things. It looks like it could be a really entertaining Western, and I'm the original sure. Western fan. But, um, you know, Denzel already has Fences coming up at the end of the year. Uh, you know, that's going to be his play as director right. and star. And, you know, so why are they doing it? They're doing it for to make nice with the director is why they're doing it. And, 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 and to give him, uh, you know, some, a nice ego boost and give it a little additional cred I mean, you're saying the festival needs to get on good terms with Antoine no, Fuqua. No, the distributor. Oh, the Sony. studio. Yeah, the so, studio. Yeah. So they're they're, it's about they're being saying, nice. It's like, why would they, you know, there, there are times when they take things to can when they really don't want to, when they really don't need to, but they do it for the, for the filmmaker so that they can go up the steps and, and you know, for the, for the ego boost that goes with it. But it's, you know? it's, it's a... It's a tricky designation because you could I mean Equalizer Antoine Fuqua's movie from a couple years ago played in Toronto and they gave it a nice slot but once you give it that opening night designation it's also inviting a certain kind of scrutiny on, on a certain platform where if the movie doesn't deliver it can really backfire I mean, I'd say opening nights are, are often forgive forgiven you know they're they're more about red carpet than than but it's a question mark it's a question because it's also closing night in venice and the way it works out because venice goes on for so much longer than telluride which you know they completely overlap the way it's working this year venice starts at the end of august telluride is over the labor day weekend venice wraps up right before toronto and on the closing, it's like two days before the opening night in Toronto, which is so, or two days after. I mean, it's, it's, it's still opening night in Toronto, closing night, which isn't as much, um, which isn't as much uh, prestige. So it's, it's sort of interesting.
Oh, so so we've read the tea leaves on this one. It sounds like it's a crowd pleaser, and, and, right. and we should expect that and manage expectations accordingly. Not a terrible place to be in terms of expectations, but it's not necessarily something that's going to change up the fall season conversation in that respect, unless unless it does. But right, and then yeah. you have and then you have these the so the new the New York Film Festival is doing a very different kind of set of so they've got an opening nighter a, a, a centerpiece and a closing nighter so, so, so let's go through a one by one right. opening night which we've known for a little while but we haven't really assessed i mean that itself is a very unique choice because it's a documentary it's Ava duvernay's documentary it's a netflix documentary called the 13th about the prison system specifically how it's so uh, unkind to put it lightly to african-americans so obviously topical and, and something that could be a big deal, and Ava DuVernay is, is such a, a you know strong personality who people love to celebrate and so forth. But at the same time, it's not the kind of movie you t- tend to see being given this sort of placement. I mean, Life of Pi opened this festival a few years ago, so it's a point of contrast. That's that's how fundamentally different this feels to it have. It feels very different, and but it feels a little bit more like the Laura Poitras. Citizen Four, you know, it was an opening night, but it had a very high profile at the festival, and 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 it does feel like uh, this could be an Oscar play uh, as well. So so it's a that's a it's a lot of it's a lot of 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 attention focused on this on this movie. And Ava DuVernay, um, I mean, she's getting a lot of attention on, on any number. Of, she's a very busy woman. I worry. I worry that she's spread spread thin because she's. She has high standards for herself. She's the first African American woman to have a movie that's at a budget over a hundred million dollars. First woman, I think, to have a budget uh, over a hundred million dollars for the A Wrinkle in Time, the Madeline Langle adaptation for Disney, and she's also done this uh, TV series that that uh, that she's been sort of sending out materials on. So it's it's very and she's got Oprah Winfrey in Wrinkle in Time and an African American girl as the lead. So right. it feels like there are efforts being made by these different festivals also to show some diversity. So sure. you know. I mean, if you look at, at the, the narrative associated with this movie, certainly if it's good enough and Netflix is confident in it, then this is a major awards play for a, for a documentary like this. I mean, it, that, that it could, I mean, Netflix, as we know from last year, can really spend on an awards campaign for in the nonfiction space. They haven't yet won an Oscar, but um, they're probably going to take what they learned from last year and push it even harder. And you couldn't ask for a more zeitgeisty selection in that respect. So that's a that's it's a pretty dramatic maneuver, but it but it will be perceived differently than than other opening nights at the festival. If and no- uh, Queen Sugar is the name of that series, by the way. Yeah. Right. And then the Wrinkle in Time is is uh, this massive production that, uh, which also know. is one of the favorite children's books of all time, and or young adult if you like, and uh, very much uh, something that they could be, you know, they could even get a Harry Potter franchise out of it if they do it right, because there was a whole series of books based on these characters, um, and and Madeline Langle, you know, tangles with tesseracts and and religion and all sorts of good things that are worth pursuing in a movie like this. I have all due confidence in Ava DuVernay. So 
centerpiece. That's so that's 20th Century Women, which is Mike Mills's movie that is going to be released by A24, which as speaking of Ex Machina, speaking of Room, uh, you know, they have they have good uh, marketing people there and know how to present a movie like this. They've got Cynthia Swartz working on it. They've got Annette Benning starring in it um, and a good cast behind her. So it's a family drama um, that looks quite promising. Yeah, I mean, uh, this is a movie that has been screening around for buyers for a while before A24 got on board, and it seems like it's... Uh, you know, it's logical to assume that it's quite strong. I love Mike Mills' stuff. Me too. It was was wonderful, and uh, Thumbsucker was 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 pretty strong as well. And um, you know, Annette Benning is the kind of actress who obviously works when she wants to. So it 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 seems like the right kind of thing to have for a slot like that. I don't. I would. I would assume it's a very small movie. It is. You know? I understand so. there's not a lot of scale involved. It's more, it could be more, it doesn't feel like it's also, you know, got a big, something like Room. One of the reasons why Room did so well was that it was, it was just so different from anything else we'd ever seen. The voice of the writer was loud and clear. It had a very unusual structure and point of view. Um, so, so I don't know where the innovation occurs here that, pu that pushes this into another, you know, is this the kids are all right? Is this, it's hard to see where, you know, what level we're talking about yet. And that's what the festivals right. are for. Yeah, of course. I mean, and, and what, what's also notable is, is putting a movie like this, which could be smaller and gentler than other things, at in a centerpiece at New York Film Festival where most of the movies are not new, um, you know, sort of to, to some degree a best of the best of things from Cannes and other places like that with a lot of international stuff means that it will have a bigger profile. So if it's, if it's strong, it's less likely to get buried because it has a very prominent slot at this festival. That's right. So. so the closing night one is interesting because it's Lost City of Z, which is a project I've been tracking for a while because I actually read the book. <laughs> God <Damn>. forbid. It <laughs> wasn't even a book group title. This is one of those entertaining reads that I act, but it's written by a New Yorker writer. It's nonfiction. It's actually one of those nonfiction books sort of like... Um, the Cleopatra book um, that 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 was you know pieced together like a, a very dramatic narrative, but out of real primary source materials, and so this this has that feel. You know, it's all based on true stuff. It's all you know about real explorers in in the in the Amazon in in you know down in Colombia and, and Venezuela and all those you know areas, and and it's it's about how horrible it was to get lost and to get. Uh, but to be obsessed, you know, with finding this this city of gold in in the in the middle of the of the jungle, and it's a lot like uh, Embrace of the Serpent, that kind of milieu, you know. Well, but that's a that's a wild movie, and I have to assume this movie, the, the Lost City. I mean, James Gray is is a very classical filmmaker. To put it to put it mild, there's two ways of looking at that. One is to say that he's an art film director who tends to make films that are a little on the flat and formal side, a little bit like Todd Haynes maybe in that sense, you know, someone who's very smart and intelligent and intellectual who with with an idea of certain visual motifs, but who doesn't necessarily go out of his way to entertain. 
I, I, I would disagree with you on that front because I think what James Gray is doing, he's just he's working in, in an older mode. I mean, he's making something like The Immigrant was like it's trying to be like an Elia Kazan film or something. It was like and, watching paint dry. Well, but but you have to remember, I mean, the difference between what he's doing and and what uh, Todd Haynes is doing. Todd Haynes is like pulling storytelling apart and doing all these kinds of. It's almost like a film theory class, and you you know the, your mileage will vary. I mean, and with, Carol with, and, was by far his most accessible, uh, along with the TV series he did, um, the one with Kate Winslet uh, playing the James N. Kane uh, heroine, Mildred Pierce. Right. Got there, so, got there eventually. Yeah, <laughs> but, 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 but James Gray's films are not. I mean, you might find them boring, but in, in austere in some ways. But they're they're more conventional stories. I mean, this could be a a bit, you know a, a conventional story. This that should is... be a rip roaring adventure. That's the thing that that I I I mean, he could he could err on the side of authenticity, and and it could be really good. And I like him. I like James Gray. I think he's smart, and I've liked some of his films very much. The Immigrant is just an exception in this case. Where do you fall on Two Lovers? That, that was a... my favorite. I loved I loved Two Lovers. I mean, the thing is, that, I interviewed is, it him for that. Like, it's a very, I mean, when you look at the one sheet for this movie and you see who's in it, Charlie Hunnam, Tom Holland, Robert Pattinson, it seems like it's just like a very familiar mold of a bunch of a bunch of dudes kind of trying to survive in the jungle. I mean, if Warner Herzog was doing it, you'd kind of know what to expect. When James Gray does it, I don't really know what to expect. I agree with you, I mean, and that's what I'm trying to say. I'm trying to say that he's he, he's he's inconsistent to to a, to a certain degree in terms of what we're you know. You're right. It could go any number of ways, and it also doesn't have a distributor yet. So on the other hand, Plan B which is, you know, Brad Pitt's company. So this does have the kind of patina of quality that that set of producers brings. That's sure. the key here. That could be the difference. Well, those guys certainly seem to know what they're doing. And yeah, um, the big short, you know, 12 years a slave. Uh, these are, they don't, they don't pussyfoot around. No, although it's, it's interesting. I mean, they have another movie on the fall schedule. Also we, Selma, by the way, speaking of they, Ava DuVernay. They, they Selma and they, they were nominated for that as well. But, but you know, the, the Barry Jenkins film Nobody's Moonlight really Moonlight's on the on the you know that's coming that's that is one that I'm really fascinated I'm hearing by. good things that's a script that's been around a long time and Jenkins hasn't made a movie since um, Medicine for Melancholy you know wait but this seems like it's on a whole other scale I'm just sort of fascinated by that spectrum when you think about it from Lost City of Z to Moonlight I mean maybe Plan B is it's going to wind up being really the, the narrative of the fall season. I mean, but it's, that, it's hard yeah. to say. Well, they've are, they're, they're usually in the narrative is the point. But, but, but the, uh, the Miles Ahead was the last time. It was an unusual situation for a movie to be booked at, at the New York Film Festival without a, without, you know, on that scale, without a distributor. And, it, it, and they immediately got one. They got one in Sony Pictures Classics, but they didn't release it till the next year. So we shall see whether Lost City of Z enters the fall arena or is pushed back to the spring. Right. I mean, it'll be an interesting kind of challenge, too, because it's late happen. in the day. Yeah. Well, with Miles Ahead, too, I mean, it, it was, it's a kind of, uh, you know, experimental way to tell a story about this guy embellishing on Miles Davis's life and his mythology, and it didn't didn't make sense for the fall season. I mean, Lost City of Z would have to be some kind of a stunner for some distributor to cobble together a fall season strategy based on you know what they see right now. I mean, it would just have to be really, really strong. So if we hear that it gets picked up, 
and it gets a certain release date before uh, that closing night slot, presumably that'll give us some indication of, of what kind of movie we're in for. But Not the other that- thing is that we haven't seen some of the big high-profile movies that I was expecting. I mean, some of them are in Toronto, like Snowden, you know, but where is Clint Eastwood's Sully going to end up, for example? Yeah, that may this, end up at I AFI think, along with rules don't apply. You know? I was going to say, at this point, I think a lot of people would like it to wind up in the Hudson with Clint Eastwood himself. There you go, because he was a bad uh, boy today. He's uh, 86 years old, Clint Eastwood. He was born in 1930, and he's. I happen to have keep hold of these things because he's the same age as my father would be if he was alive. And he is uh, out there, uh, you know, in, an, in, a, in a long interview d- defending uh, Donald Trump. And what he's really doing, if you look at the, if you, if you look at the actual text, what, what he, it's the same thing where people pull out the, the thing that, that is the most inflammatory, where it, it, it reads as though he's saying he should just, you know, don't call him a racist because he says these horrible things. Of course, Donald Trump is a racist. And, you know, I would like to think that, you know, in, in the course of the article, Clint does not defend his treatment of Mexicans. He used to be married to a woman of Hispanic descent. Yeah, but he's not exactly coming down too hard on the guy in a way that, that makes it seem like he's he's offering some sort of, you know, definitive opinion. And I think that's part of the problem now is that the narrative of this election has been such that you are either, uh, you know, supporting this crazy person and endorsing the horrible things that he's saying, or you're being very clear that he represents a very ugly perspective. So he's like, the thing about Clint, that there's three things. One, he's, he's of a certain age. Two, He's used to getting away with whatever he says, and he's a movie star, and he's in a bubble, and he doesn't get it. He doesn't understand what he's saying in some ways in terms of how it's going to be received. And he comes from another older generation. I'm not defending him. I'm not defending him. I do not want to excoriate him to such a degree that I'm going to say I will never watch his films again. I love his films. I give a a shit what, you know, I'll see the movie and and make that determination. I think, I I don't think he doesn't get it. I think he he just doesn't care. I think think he doesn't. I think it's a combination of both. I think he doesn't understand that he's defend. He's one of those people who thinks that political correctness is bullshit. And that, and that we shouldn't be walking on eggshells. That's what he says. We shouldn't be worrying about, because, you know, if we have something to say, say it. You know, he, he's, he's doing that number. Yeah, I mean, he's a hard right libertarian. Correct. And, and that perspective, but, but at the same time, it just seems like the way that he formulates his opinion about politics is just, is just so wildly out of sync with the way that he makes movies. I mean, he's very in control of film language, and yet when it comes to talking about how, you know, how the world works, he, just seem, he, did, he does sound really clueless. I agree, and, and I think it's a part of, even though he was a politician at one time and was mayor of Carmel and all that stuff, I think, I think it's generational. I think, that there, I think that the kind of, if you go back a, a few decades and you look at, at, at if you think about where people were who grew up in that period, you know, in the 30s and 40s and how they regarded race, it's hard to justify their attitudes in many ways. And and there are a lot of people who come from that place. It's just the way it is. And so we don't know if, if Sully's going to play at a film festival or what's going on. I mean, part of the problem is that 
with uh, if this was a movie being made by Robert Zemeckis and Robert Zemeckis said something stupid about Donald Trump, he's just not the same kind of public figure, right? I mean, Clint Eastwood is people know who he is because he's a celebrity. Even though he is not in Sully, he becomes part of the identity of that movie, and so these words could end up traveling with him. And if he, he's at a festival and doing more press for the movie, people are going to ask him about it. And it's I know. Like, it's interesting. I mean, it's one of those things where he's sort he's been given a pass for a really long time and the Academy supported him, you know, on Unforgiven and they supported him any number of times, including, you know, Million Dollar Baby. They supported him as well on American Sniper, which was a huge hit all over the country. Um, I wonder, this was a long lead magazine piece. I mean, I really wonder what Clint would say about some of the hideous things Trump has been saying about the military. I have a feeling he would be critical. So if you look at the piece, he goes through and says, you know, this was bad. This I don't approve of that thing that he said. I mean, he doesn't support everything he says. He's going. He's. It's sort of like Oliver Stone, who felt very out of touch with Snowden, in you know when he talked about Pokemon Go and and uh, you know got really super paranoid about how they're all going to steal our identities and stuff. You know, so he he's he's putting. Sometimes these guys don't don't even realize how they're coming off. The fundamental difference between those two things is that it's kind of innocuous and, and hilarious to hear Oliver Stone talk about Pokemon Go, right. where it's, it, it could be dangerous, and it, and it certainly is on some level hurtful. It is dangerous. I fell down playing Pokemon Go because I was no, I, I chasing balls. That's how it's dangerous. Dangerous in a, in, a, in a silly kind of way. I mean, I think what Clint Eastwood is doing is, is, is more dangerous because it has a, the potential to have a bigger reverberation in terms of how people talk about things. No, and it, could be, it could be very negative for him because the Academy, but that's what I'm trying to say. Uh, he has been a conservative figure, liberal, I mean, um, inside a liberal, you know, Academy universe for a very long time, and they've given him a pass, and the question is whether that's going to continue. Well, in any case, uh, I mean, I'm, I'm looking forward to seeing it just because uh, he is a filmmaker who surprises us each time out with some good movies and some not so good movies. But even at 86, and he's still going, very few uh, prominent filmmakers in this country do that. And I'm sure however that movie turned out, it's probably better than Suicide Squad. So, Oh, you know, my so God. People have piled on this movie and such. I'm just looking it up. I want to see what the current Rotten Tomatoes number is while you're doing that i mean it's so so the weird thing that happened with this movie was that there's this bizarre tendency in our culture where fans of a product that they're anticipating will get mad that when critics pile on early and so it's at 28 percent on rotten so, tomatoes so, so the petition to like shut down rotten tomatoes and all that kind of stuff when people see this movie i mean it's just it's just bland i i i wouldn't even say i mean there are some people who are furious and infuriated with this movie i just found it to be poorly made i mean it's not the premise is bad or the characters are necessarily bad on paper it's more just that it's it's just not well assembled it's another situation where a studio and the people at dc who answer to the studio not the other way around um are basically uh making movies by committee and you know the, a lot of the things that are wrong with this are the things that were wrong with uh batman versus superman and this thing as opposed to deadpool deadpool cost 58 million dollars and it did uh like 
700 million dollars worldwide it, it surprised me but it had a fun script it was a good time and it was edgy in a really precise way this it movie was r-rated and it yeah. was so cheap that they could afford to take chances with it and make it what it want, needed to be. And the guy who was directing it knew what he wanted, and so did Ryan Reynolds, and everybody was on board. And Fox was on board. But when you look at Suicide Squad, the, the, the fundamental problem is this. It's, it's a subversive concept in which you have, on, on some level, the opportunity to relate, maybe even sympathize with villains uh, who are in a work release program. You could even use that as a metaphor for our prison system on some level if you want to, but but even without that nuanced reading, I mean, the, just the idea of these lunatics, and some of them are actually killers, being foregrounded as the protagonist is a really bold concept, and this is just a movie that is too stupid to parse what that means. There are some That's moments, right. and Will Smith has a few of them. Will Smith of all of them, and Joel Kinnaman, I have to say that many of the actors in Suicide Squad rise above the material. And the question that I have, what, what the people who edited this movie did not allow it to do. For example, I'm looking here on Rotten Tomatoes, there's a picture of Jared Leto as the Joker opposite um, Margot Robbie as uh, Harley Quinn, right? And they that relationship, especially of all of them, makes no sense. <laughs> it's like, what? So what happened? It's they don't give you the exposition. They have so many different characters, and they do not give you in, in even in even Guardians of the Galaxy, which was starting from nowhere. No one knew what that was. No one knew who these people were. They establish the characters. They establish the universe. They give you and the fact that they put this in Gotham. They put this in. They put. Ben Affleck in it as Batman. All of those elements were were awful. They they felt wrong. They felt no, all applied. Of the felt wrong, and the whole yeah. movie was wrong. And and it feels like it's so redundant to say some of the cliched things about the way that Hollywood operates. But the Deadpool thing is such a great example of why you need a good script. You need a good story. You need innovation. You need to upend expectations, a smart idea, a but good I can't, director. I couldn't agree more, but I can't help but wonder what David Ayer had in mind originally, what he started out with. What, I kind of do. I, I, do. I, mean, I, I want to know because this was hacked to death. Okay, here, here's the thing. This is adapted from... These characters have been around for decades, but the but the Suicide Squad comics really came to prominence in the 80s, and the 80s were a really specific time in American comics where they got darker. They started to tackle more mature ways of exploring their characters, Frank Miller's Dark Knight Return, Alan Moore's Watchmen. So that historical basis has been what I think DC has been trying to capture with their films. And they have done so fitfully, successfully, and, and, and during the Warner Brothers era, uh, you know, the Robinov era and the, the, the Daily Samuel era, there were some successes. They tended to but, go with directors. It is under Kevin that, Sujahara that they have really gone south, in my humble it, opinion. Well, well, that, that's an industry question that, that is, is one that seems to be borne out by the way these movies have, have been coming together. They're but not it, being put together as intelligently as the Marvel movies are put together by it, Kevin that, Feige. That, that is what's missing. I mean, if you look at these comments, it's not just that they're dark. It's not just that they have these wacky characters or that they that it feels like it's somehow putting the, a pop culture element into something much darker than we usually see it. It's it's that it's doing it and fusing it with some some really great storytelling elements and the storytelling it just isn't there it, no. it kind of 
feels like a half-assed way of saying, we know you, you're, you're going to see this movie, so we're going to give you the idea of the movie in your head. And that's the biggest problem, I think, with mainstream movies today anyways. But, you know, I'm, I'm out at this uh, cinephile festival in Switzerland, so I'm in that radical you're- mood. No, I mean, this is this the the problem is it probably will open and it will probably do really, really well. And but it's never going to get to what Deadpool got to. Let's put it that way. It's going to fall off. It's going to be not as good. And if it's cost two hundred and fifty million dollars, they're going to lose money. And that's not what these movies are supposed to accomplish. If it's that much of a disaster, then uh, we're going to have to wait and see how Justice League Part 1 comes together next year because it's not like they're getting out of this hole anytime soon. Well, they so. promoted the guy at DC, Jeff Johns, and that's the other thing. I mean, it's, it's like um, Jeff and the, the, whatever. The, there's going to have to be, an, luckily for them, I was going to say there's going to have to be an accounting. You know, I think they have excellent marketing and distribution. I think that the production side is weak, and we'll see what happens over we there. We shall see. So we'll reconvene next week. We'll take a look at the box office figures there. I promise I'll have seen a lot more Locarno movies to share with you, and who knows, there may be some more award season updates there as well. But for now, I'm just going to try to get some rest because it's uh, the middle of the night out in Get Europe. some sleep. Till then.